Hey guys, if you can think about how you found this podcast, maybe it's on Instagram or TikTok, maybe someone shared it with you. I don't run ads for the show or have sponsorships, so the only way this grows is through word of mouth. If this was valuable for you in any way, my only ask is if you could share this with someone who you think would help their investing journey or business. Thanks a lot, and let's get to the episode. Welcome to STR Like the Best. I'm your host, Michael Chang. I have the great pleasure to welcoming Jesse DePinto, the CEO of Front Desk. Jesse, welcome to the show. Michael, thanks for having me. Huge fan of the podcast. Thank you. appreciate that. So my traditional first question is, as a CEO of a 1,200-unit portfolio company, tell us your most memorable guest experience that you've had managing one of the short-term rental guests. Most memorable guest that we've had, at least the one that sticks in my mind, there was a Instagram influencer. She had, I don't know, had hundreds of thousands, millions of followers and had a bad experience, obviously. So I got pulled in. Th- things don't always go right in hospitality. And as you, you can imagine, usually we have a chance to make names and, and nobody ever knows. And as long as we bounce back, it's private. But if we solve the problem with this particular guest, the second she walked in the unit, there was something that was less than ideal. I can't remember what, but within minutes, I didn't find out from the email. I found out from an Instagram story that that tagged our company. She found my account, tagged me and let the whole world know. She was a phenomenal guest. And the reason why she, I remember this one in particular is because we we did actually make the situation right. And she's now one of our best friends. So having an Instagram influencer on your side comes in handy when you're trying to get the word out about your company. Yeah, I would say that we have a, we have an advisor that works for Disney that always tells us that it doesn't matter necessarily what happens. You want to get things right, but it's hospitality and and the things often go wrong. It's a matter of how you bounce back. So that's we were proud of how we bounce back for this one, but definitely memorable. Definitely. <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. As I'm on my short, excuse me social media journeys, but it's definitely the power of the platform is great and they want to weld it responsibly. So hopefully that influencer was able to work with, it sounds like I was able to work with you guys constructively mm-hmm. and now having good organic marketing or is really valuable. So I'm sure that's played a great role in the growth of your company. So maybe just give us a little background on, on front desk. You guys are one of the largest uh, short-term rental operators in the space. Tell us more about you. how you built this portfolio. Yeah, sure. Front Desk is a next generation hospitality brand. We appeal to corporate leisure travelers. We have offices in in over 30 markets in the U.S. We serve about 15,000 guests every month at our properties. And we feel fortunate and privileged to be at at the forefront of this really exciting, disruptive new wave of hospitality. We've been running since 2017, got mm-hmm. our start in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. You don't hear of hospitality brands being built in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, but it is possible. And yeah. it's, been a, it's been a wild ride, as you can imagine, going through the past couple of years we've been through in the industry. But overall, it's been incredibly enjoyable and a fun journey. We have a great team. We've built a vertically integrated brand management and operating business. And that, what that means to us is that we employ the, the engineers and data scientists that are building the foundational platform and the mobile first kind of guest technology, as well as the housekeepers and the maintenance people that are serving the units on a daily basis. And so Front Desk is a venture-backed, high-growth, short-term rental brand. We are asset light. We work with multifamily, institutional, real estate owners and operators. 
and offer our about 1,200 units across about 170 downtown high-rise Class A multifamily apartment buildings. Got we it. recently closed an acquisition, our first corporate acquisition of a, a great Chicago-based operator by the name of Zen City. We overlapped in Chicago, Kansas City, and St. Louis. And so as of just about two weeks ago, we closed our first corporate acquisition. And now we're embarking on the next leg of the journey, which is, which is rolling up the, this kind of fragmented industry to, to really build some scale and build a name. That's fantastic. And I think you guys come at it from a different angle with the venture backs of folks that don't know, means that institutional investors like pension funds, venture capital firms have invested in front desks. I think you guys have raised your, I saw, I looked at you guys raised a B round last year, I believe. So congratulations on that. You did your first M&A deal. Congratulations on that. It's a former M&A banker. Roll-up strategies are always very, very interesting. I think there's a lot of fragmentation in space and with the brand and technology that you guys have, you guys are well-placed. But I want to talk a little bit about, and today we have fairly limited time today, just given our respective schedules. So about 10 minutes on this podcast more. Tell us about how you started it. Did you start with more of a master lease model slash lease arbitrage? And for folks, it means that rent a, you rent apartments from a building and you're paying a fixed lease payment every month. And then now they believe you, you've migrated more to a revenue share model, which is there isn't a fixed payment, but there's a percentage or a portion of the revenue slash earnings from the guests now go to the landlord. So tell us a little bit more about how that migration of that model, like did you start with master leases and then migrate over to a revenue share model? Yeah, we did. So we started in 2017. Like many, we thought we had this genius idea to, to rent an apartment unit and re-rent it and capture that spread arbitrage as a lot of your past guests have, have done and do well. What we did that for the first two or so years in the business exclusively, where we would go to a multifamily operators and sign a lease and we were acting as a tenant. And what we eventually used that to to to, pick, to leapfrog into a pure management business. And we used the lease arbitrage strategy to get our start as a go-to-market strategy, if you will, because in the early days, it was really, it was hard enough to convince an apartment owner to, to let you use their space in their community with long-term residents for short-term rental use. That was enough of an education and then being able to also convince them that you can deliver top yield for their property and that they should take a bet on you. It's really hard when you don't have a track record. We used the lease arbitrage model to get a start. And right around 2019, 2020, when the pandemic broke out, that that transition ended up being a lot more quickly accelerated in the company and out of necessity back then. But now where we're at today is we definitely lean on the rev share model. When you operate at the scale we do, and you, you really can't operate this type of business in such asset heavy way or liability heavy mm -hmm. way. And where we're at now is now that we have the scale, the track record, a big part is convincing the owner with case studies that not only can you optimize for their convenience, but also for their yield and their NOI and their revenue. And so bringing exclusive channels like stayfrontdesk.com and myriad of other exclusive channels, we can mm -hmm. kind of actually demonstrate that, that yield. But yeah, definitely got our start in the lease arbitrage world as many other listeners did got it got it and look i, I think this and i think that's a great part about short-term rentals there's a lot of different strategies on how to grow your business and be profitable revenue share for folks that don't again for folks that don't understand that it's you convince the landlord to rent 
to, to allow you to operate in your buildings X amount of units. And then you will share within the revenue or profits, just depending on the deal, enough of that. So for them, they have to make the, they have to one, trust that you will deliver the revenue. You have a track record that, you know, you can operate effectively. Two is they need to see that versus it's a different motion for them, right? Versus, Hey, I underwrite a building. I'm going to get this amount of rent for this many buildings. X times Y equals Z. Okay, great. Versus just a lot of other variables like revenue times share. Is there a floor? So it's much more complicated, which you do need a track record, a brand funding backing in order to convince and candidly probably relationships where your investors may invest in you and they have relationships with multifamily and then you can bridge the gap there. It's, it's definitely a, a much more, I think a much more institutional model versus if you're just starting out, it's probably pretty difficult to, I would say it's pretty difficult to convince a, an owner of a property to do a revenue share if you're not, if you're not scaled. Yeah. When rep share goes well, it goes really well. You're totally aligned with the building owner in terms of what type of tactics to, to maximize yeah. yield. And the operator survives downturns in the economy, <laughs> right? We saw in 2020, that was not the case with all lease arbitrage businesses back then. And also the owner collects more income if done right. And yeah. it sounds like that should be a negative thing for the operator, but from a risk adjusted standpoint, it is the optimal path. But when rev share goes wrong, it can also go very wrong where that building now has less income than what they thought. And uh, there's a reason why not every building owner is willing to sign up for a rev share. It, it can go wrong. You got to know who you're getting. <laughs> exactly. Leverage, the leverage swings both ways, right? A lease is just a different form of leverage. On the upside, it's great. On the downside, it can be rather painful. So it, it impacts everyone in different ways, whether lease arbitrage, obviously, is much more an operator. But if it's too hard on an operator, then the building gets impacted as well. Because at a certain point, you can't draw blood from stone kind of thing. That's right. Actually, a question for you. So... You guys list on on Airbnb all the different OTAs. If you can talk about it publicly, like what of your exclusive channels, what proportion of revenue or bookings do you actually see from that? Because there's a big movement towards direct bookings right now, just given changes on Airbnb, the algorithm, et cetera. Is that something we can talk high level about how you've made that transition? Maybe not specific numbers, how that, how that transition has gone for you or, yeah. or how that channel evolution has gone for you? Yeah. So... We're not direct booking purists. We are building a hospitality brand and that is an important thing for us, but we look at it through the lens of RevPAR and channel diversity. So RevPAR, whatever maximizes yield. And if 50% of your bookings are coming in through channels outside of Airbnb, you're leaving a lot of money on the table by being exclusive on Airbnb, right? That's just the way that RevPAR works in hospitality. And so you drive more, you have more eyeballs, you drive more demand, but also from a channel diversity standpoint, we have not all of our eggs in one basket. Now, all of these OTAs have been proven to be incredibly great partners, but when you raise institutional capital, and that's one of those common questions that are asked when any investor is underwriting the business is how concentrated is your, are your customers? <laughs> I'm sure you, you appreciate and remember those questions on your investment banking days, but that's how we think through it. It was a huge learning curve and mastering an OTA is, is one of those things where the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. And yeah. so it, it took us, we're now almost seven years in operating. It took us probably the first three to four years to really understand how to do this well, because once you get all, out, outside of just one OTA, it exponentially makes it more complex. And for us, we really had to lean into tech. That was always our strong suit. We built our own pricing algorithm, second year of business, and then built a PMS on top of that and the third year of business. 
and really being able to maximally optimize yield and distribution in a way that is automated and simple for an operator ended up being a really important asset for us as we went on. Now, the biggest lesson learned here was that there are Every channel is insanely difficult to master and you really have to choose carefully. And so the top five channels that you probably have heard about, so Airbnb, Booking.com, VRBO, Expedia, and Marriott Homes of Villas, these are where the majority of the bookings are coming through yeah. and obviously direct. There is a long tail of channels that sound appealing. It sounds like it's free. It's never free. It's always going to take a lot of brain drain and organizational focus and very little do those do those kind of boutique and smaller niche channels pay off totally and marriott is really over the last year or so we've seen in our business too really gained additional traction more so in the urban areas actually versus where i thought we're in philadelphia tennessee and i thought it would be a lot more tennessee mm -hmm. it's a lot more philadelphia actually i think just people cashing their bonvoy points but it's, I think part of that is just like, just make sure you're on those big OTAs. Definitely agree with you on mastering them and booking.com might like something that Airbnb doesn't and just trying to navigate. Do you serve breakfast? Like, no, we don't serve breakfast here in the US, but everyone in Europe believes like breakfast should come with, with a guest day. So there's always like little idiosyncrasies that you have to be mindful of, but we always hey, make sure you're on all the OTAs. We use Hostaway as our PMS. We're not necessarily scaled enough to, to build our own, but it's great that you've built all these proprietary technologies that you're not, you're not beholden to someone else's technology. Obviously, congratulations on, on all the progress so far. I wish we had more time and we'll, if you ever have time, I'd love to get you back on to talk more about the technology behind the platform. There's a whole long list of things like dealing with institutional investors, someone that has 50, hundred units and want to scale up right now. Not that you want more competitors in your space, but like, how do people think about making that evolution between hundred to 500? I always yeah. think that from five to 50, zero to zero to five is like hard to do. But once you get that, then five to 50, hundred, they can do that. But then once yeah. you get a hundred and then above, it's just a whole different ball game of, of scale. It's a massive industry. It's a big market. It's not winner take all. There's a lot of when the boats rise, so do all, when the tides <laughs> rise, so do all the boats. Happy to be helpful any way I can. I'll say having been on the other side of the kind of 100 to 1000 listing range, that's a tough spot to be. You're small and you're large enough to where the CEO and president can't go clean units anymore, but you're not large enough to have the real infrastructure and scale. And as we look toward executing on roll-up strategy, I think we've understood that operators in that kind of 100, like maybe 300 to 1000 unit range, it's really tough to build that scale and to make the unit economics work. Yeah. Definitely empathize with operators <laughs> in that range and always happy to have conversations. Yeah, if folks are looking to have a conversation with you, please reach out to Jesse Afrodasi. I'm sure you're happy to talk about how how your company can work and make make everyone's portfolio stronger. Actually, quick question before I let you go. When you're since you just closed on deal, tell us a little bit. I'm just curious on the MA side. Is it like a how do you price it? Is it per unit? Is it revenue? Cash? What is that made? What is that valuation matrix? If you can just talk a very high level about how you look at value, like when people are evaluating valuation for their business, should they be looking at a unit count or revenue count, the signability of their leases, their last year cash flow, their bookings? Like how did you, how did they think about it? And then one minute yeah. we have like hard question, <laughs> last minute. It's a negotiation and free cash flow speaks volumes. And so <laughs> get your business profitable, show that EBITDA and the uh, whether it's a, a boom market or a not so boom market, people come back to those fundamentals and revert to the mean on, on valuation of, of EBITDA multiples. Focus on that EBITDA.
Bottom line. Folks, focus on cash flow. It's not your unit count. It's always about how profitable your business is. And keep good books because if you have good books, then you can actually have a conversation with someone like Jesse who wants to acquire businesses because the first thing you're going to ask is send me your financials. And if your financials is a Google sheet, you're not going to get very far. If it's in the QuickBooks or you have someone professionally look at it, you're going to be, going to be that much that much ahead of the game. Jesse, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate you taking the time to do this and look forward to having you on again. Thank you.